This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you love a good TV drama then I expect, like much of the rest of the country, you were probably gripped by the BBC series Happy Valley. On the face of it, it's a drama about an astute policewoman in West Yorkshire investigating crimes while balancing her personal and professional lives. But it soon becomes clear that this is actually the story of a mother coming to terms with her daughter's rape and suicide, and a grandmother raising her abandoned grandchild. It's about children born from rape and how society and their families see them. These are difficult conversations and they can be extremely triggering for some. In today's episode, we talk about children born from rape and issues around child sexual abuse. So if you find those subjects particularly upsetting then maybe this isn't the episode for you. But do come back and find us again tomorrow. I am more than evidence. I am more than a witness. I am more than a product of rape. I am not your shame, and I will not carry the shame and horror of what you chose to do. In a recent piece of landmark legislation... The government is aiming to change the law so that children conceived through rape will be officially classified as victims of crime. It's taken years and years of campaigning to get here. And one voice at the forefront of it all is a woman we're calling Daisy, who's been fighting for the rights of people in her position. Children born from rape. I'm a secondary victim now. It's changed the whole course of my life. I don't know who I would have been. He's changed everything fundamentally. Daisy has been instrumental in changing the government's policy. And this is her story. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, Daisy's Law. One woman's fight to send her rapist father to jail. (music) 
my name is Daisy. I am 47 years young and I have just helped change the law for children born from rape. I mean, that is an extraordinary achievement. There aren't many people who get to talk about that. Daisy's law. To understand the law and to understand its importance, I think we probably need to know more about Daisy. So tell us a bit about your childhood. Tell us a bit about your earliest memories. I grew up in the south of England, older siblings, mother and father, quite an idyllic childhood in many ways. You know, bike rides, going to the park with friends, dog walking. We had very nice holidays, south of France, go to Greece. It sounds idyllic. Idyllic in many ways, everything you needed. When did that change? I'm not sure that that actually changed. I think the main aspect for me is as I grew up realising, or not really realising, but not understanding my position in that family as a black child. I cannot recall being told about being adopted. Mm. I can't recall a point of realising, hang on, I look different to them. I've always known I was adopted but I can't remember being sat down by my adoptive parents and being told and I would say that despite the lovely description I've told you I was a very shy child yeah I wanted to be invisible I was very quiet I was very compliant I was very good I think I had a lot on my shoulders even though no one said, well, you know, you're black, you're adopted, born from rape, not had a great start. I think there was a part of me that knew, even though I didn't have the words, I'm talking about around primary school age, something's not right here, I don't feel right. Tell me about that. What felt off? That I knew this wasn't my real family. Where were the people that I looked like? feeling rejected and abandoned, but not knowing the story. I say in hindsight, I was a sad child. I was a black baby placed in a white family who had no knowledge, no knowledge about my ethnic background, cultural needs, physical care needs. And there was no way they would have been able to understand the trauma of adoption. No one would have told them that. Mm. They wouldn't have known how that had impacted on me. And there's no way anyone explained to them how my background should be explained to me. So at what age did you become aware of your birth mother, of what had happened to you, of where all of this came from? I definitely was aware around the ages of 13 and 14, which is around the ages when she was raped. My parents had shown me a small piece of information from social services I was locked away I found the key I'm used to go and look at it intermittently because it's lost like the one kind of connection yeah. I had to my birth mother and what did it say what did it tell you it said ages of my birth father it didn't give his name but said he was between the ages of 30 and 35 just written matter-of-factly mm. birth mother age 14 Attractive child, good at netball and some other bits of information. And that was it. And you were 
13 or 14 at around this age. So you realize that your birth mother, when she gave birth to you, was the same age, was yeah. a child. Yeah. And actually, the age difference at that stage didn't spring out to me. I didn't read that and go, she was raped. Because I remember thinking, that's odd. And I think by the Very time young. I got to 18, it, it was a shock. But I think I must have worked it out. But I do remember being in school. I've got an image now sitting in a specific classroom thinking, oh, my God. She would have been at school, pregnant, sitting here like I am now. And again, I don't think I ever expressed that to anybody. That's a lot to take in. What did you make of this information? You know, as you're starting to get a glimpse of what your birth mother must have gone through. Just knowing that she had me at such a young age was deeply troubling, distressing. I mean, I think with anybody, think of a 13-year-old girl, little girl that you know. Yeah. Think of a 13-year-old girl giving birth. What should happen in that scenario for that child being a mother to another? It's horrendous. What did you do next? I mean, at this point, did you want to try and find her? I always wanted to find her as an adopted child. I don't think there was any day that went past without me thinking of my birth mother, birthdays particularly. For many adoptees, that was the day they were separated. Yeah. You know, to say I feel fortunate that I had seven days is sad, isn't it? Seven days. Before you were separated. Before separated. I was initially told we were spent 10 days together. And when I revisited getting my files, it was clear it was seven. That sounds like a small bit of information. To me, that was one of the most devastating things I've read. Thinking of me as a baby, alone, this poor child going home, having given birth and being told not to mention the baby or the rape. And yet down the road, this baby's left in hospital. My birth mother was shamed giving birth as a child, shamed for being pregnant as a 14-year-old during birth. That's horrifying. How did you start to piece all of this together? I mean, did you manage to find out who she was or how to find her? I was well aware that the law was that at 18, I had the legal right to trace. So I'd always been really keen to do that. Received my adoption files. That's where it was really clear, the rape that had taken place. It was all in the file? Yeah. You had it written yeah. it down as, yeah. as a rape? The police investigation took place, matter never brought to court. It was there, written, just written there. No kind of even a note, sensitive information. Not, it's written there. In black and white. Yeah. But yes, I initially started tracing, went and got, I've got the birth certificates as part of the tracing process. So I always had her name, but had more detail. Addresses, so her address when she was born, I was born. And actually, we just found my maternal grandmother's address. And that was nearly two years later with the help of my adoptive father. This was before you could just Google everything. So yeah. it was much harder for adoptees to trace. Got them to check kind of local records and found my grandmother was still at the address that was on a certificate. And then the social worker sent a letter. So there was an exchange of letters through the social worker initially and then a direct exchange between us, which provided me for the first time a photo. 
when I found out for sure that I was born from rape, one of my fears really was, is she even going to want to meet me? I represent the worst thing that probably has happened to her that I was aware of. Yeah. Do I look like the rapist? Is she alive? Has she killed herself? Has her life gone continuously to be awful? And just every every outcome I probably thought of, and that's a lot to think. She may not want to see me because I've got the face of him. So the relief, the validation to go for 20 years not seeing anybody who looks like you, you can't even imagine that unless you're adopted, separated from your birth family. So at the age of 18, you've tracked down your birth mother. Does she want to meet immediately? So yeah, that took a couple of years. So I was 21 when we finally sort of had this exchange of letters. And immediately, she was really happy that I'd got in touch, said she'd always thought about me. Really? And that we should meet. So I had a couple of letter exchanges, I think must have had a phone call. And then I did everything you shouldn't do for a reunion, went up and stayed for the weekend. Oh, yeah. So quite intense, yeah. straight in. And you know what? I don't regret it. What was it like seeing her for the first time? We looked so alike. We had the same hairstyle, same height, same build, same ring on the same finger. I remember we walked somewhere. We walked around the corner to see one of her friends. It was like, no, that's not my reflection. It's my birth mother. First time <laughs> in my 20s walking down the street with my birth mother. What was she like? <laughs> As a person? It's really hard to describe. I think there is a similarity. We sort of similar sense of humour. We both swear a lot, actually. <laughs> I've got a, I've got That's got to be a genetic I've inheritance. Got a, I think so. That's <laughs> not my fault. Um, I th there was a warmth, but there wasn't a kind of this constant, I need to hug you, I need to... It, it was... I think both of us weren't overly, overly affectionate. But yeah, we're strangers. Yeah. Last time she saw me, I was a baby in a cot and she's been taken out of hospital. I mean, I can't even imagine how that has been for her. And you've grown up with a whole life of your own. Yeah. Completely separately. Which you can't play catch up to. Yeah. Really. Were you able to get on? I feel like we got on. We maintained contact for a few years. Probably saw her three more times. Maybe not. You know, it's really hazy how many times, which is yeah. interesting. And I did feel that it was difficult. It felt it got more difficult. I guess the more we knew each other or were in each other's lives, it felt more tricky. Mm. I felt, she may disagree, I felt I would need to be really sensitive about asking about my birth father. When did you bring that up? I didn't really. I let her offer any information. Right. Really, I can't remember anything specific yeah, that she told me about him. You didn't, didn't want push to it. ask. Didn't yeah. push it. As young as I was, I think I was still very kind of, you need to watch yourself with this. Yeah. Did she open up about it at some Not point? Really. No. I only know what happened because of court. Literally, I only know what happened because of court hearing, else I, no one would have offered me any information because of what was in the case files. wasn't even told his name. No one told me anything. How did you go about finding out? 
So obviously I had information in the files. She didn't give me anything, not given a name, not given any information, not given any, and understandably, mm. my birth father that I want information about is also her rapist. So I got it, but it was in 2001, I think I was feeling like our reunion wasn't going well, quite a struggle. So this is after a few meetings? Yeah. I was at a stage where I'm thinking, I feel like I'm making a lot of the effort, not sure how well this is going. All the complexities for me of life and being adopted and identity, you know, you're like in your early 20s, you don't know who you are. Yeah. And I thought, well, I haven't really got anything to lose. I might as well ask my birth mother the questions I've been meaning to ask, because what have I got to lose? I wasn't asking her to step in in any parenting way at all. But um, wrote a letter explaining how I was feeling around the contact but I also brought up that I am very interested about my birth father, would be interested in meeting him. Could she tell me anything about him? Had she also thought about a prosecution? Because I'm aware it was right. So I put that in this letter. Oh, wow. And I remember keeping a copy because I knew it was going to be explosive in yeah. terms of how she responded but to it. She was simultaneously saying you'd be interested in meeting him, but also yeah. had she thought about taking yeah. him to court? Yeah. So... You've written to her, offering those options. And that letter was not received well, not received well. And that sort of spelled the sort of estrangement, which is absolutely tragic. And I will always say, Carvel Bennett, my birth father, my birth mother's rapist, that act of rape, the impact that has had, that wasn't just one child on an afternoon in his house the body count in terms of lives that have been impacted. Yeah. You know, all my birth mother's family, my life, the foster carers I was placed with, my current siblings, my younger siblings, my childminder, my friends, my boyfriend, the, uh, the adverse impact of what he's done. People have seen me in pain. I've been in pain. And this was just another example of what he did and system failing her and me, that we in this awful, awful situation of none of our doing. Yeah. Because a man said, I'm going to rape a child. I'm going to rape this child today in my house. Daisy would soon come face to face with that man in her remarkably brave pursuit for justice. We'll have more in just a moment. I'm Sean O'Neill and I'm a former crime editor, chief reporter and now a senior writer at The Times. I've been at the paper for 18 years and currently have the freedom to write in news investigations, magazine features and comment pieces. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. 
You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Back then, Daisy had managed to make contact with her birth mother, but she still didn't know her birth father's name. In fact, she knew nothing about him, apart from the fact that he was a rapist. As she was trying to piece together information, historic cases of sexual abuse suddenly started making headlines in a way that shook the country. Saville and Stuart Hall were serial sexual predators. Rolf Harris was not, in the eyes of the world, just a celebrity, but a national popular figure. But the 84-year-old entered the dock at Southwark Crown Court today to bear witness to allegations of a much darker side. It was about 2011, 2012. We get the start of kind of Operation Tree, Jimmy Savile, Various historical offence cases, famous with seemingly less evidence than my case. Independent child abuse inquiry. Also, I've been doing research on sexual violence. It was my specialist subject. It was a full-time job for years holding down a job and then coming home and doing the job of police, child protection, social worker, investigative journalist, detective. And what did you find in that research? Were you able to work out very much about him? I was able to trace him. I went back to the council and requested more files because obviously data protection laws had changed. I thought, okay, See if I can get some more files. Might give me an address, might give me more. Got these records. I found his name. As soon as I put that address in, Carvel Bennett's name comes up. Throughout this time, from 2014, I'm obviously in touch with police and social care. The police initially said, okay, we're going to go out and speak to your birth mother. Didn't ask you that. I want to make a report. I want you to investigate. I would like you to do an evidence-based prosecution. 
So this is through your research, you'd looked at the Crown Prosecution Service, you'd yeah, looked at what thought, it takes to prosecute someone. Evidence-based prosecution. So I'm sitting there going, oh my gosh, bingo, I'm DNA evidence. The one major thing with historic offences is this, the lack of evidence, particularly forensic evidence. I've got social work files, two lots of social work files where it's written. It is written by various people. The information's repeated. Yeah. And your DNA is I evidence. am DNA. She was 13. If she's 13, that's statutory rape. Yeah. So there, there is an entire case that you've built up there. Yeah. Went to the police, found this evidence, found this information. They refused. They kept refusing to do anything. No, we've not changed our position. At this stage, you're pursuing a case against your birth father. The legal proceedings are going nowhere. There's no legal proceedings. So I'm doing research. I'm contacting barristers, solicitors. You're not the victim. I'm contacting child protection experts. You're not the victim. Daisy had done everything she could. She tracked down Carvel Bennett. She'd even confronted him in his own home, But when she went to the police and local authorities, she kept being told that they couldn't act on her complaint because she wasn't classed as a victim under the law. I decided I was never going to drop it. Decided I'm going to start writing a book about trying to get a prosecution, trying to get a law change and my adoption experience. So I managed to find a Birmingham male journalist, Jeanette Oldham, Mm. and realised that this journalist did a lot of stories around failings by both of those organisations, connected with her and together wrote, edited a article about my case. I'd also been in touch with MPs before then. So with the media, contacting local MPs, the police seeing that out in their local paper, oh, this will get a reaction. Nothing. Nothing. Not a dicky bird. I mean, that must be quite disheartening at this stage. I would say souls destroying. How people keep campaigning, I do not know. It's that anger and the injustice that would get me out of bed. And, you know, anger gets a bad rap. It's anger that has fueled me because there's been enough reason to. But things like that, it chips away at every part of your body, especially when it's people that you think they're going to come and support this. And nothing. Nothing. So fueled by anger, fueled by the need to see something done about this, you know, you're not giving up. What do you do? So it was 2018. Victoria Derbyshire's show featured Sammy Woodhouse's story around the local authority looking at contact between Sammy's son and Sammy's perpetrator. Sammy's son born from rape. And she was sexually exploited as a child. Sammy Woodhouse had a happy, normal childhood until one day when she was 14, she met Arshid, known as Mad Ash Hussein, and all that changed forever. Sammy was groomed by him, raped multiple times and coerced... So I was sort of listening to that and thought, oh, I'll send that Birmingham Mail article into that show. January 2019, I get a call from the journalist there, we'd like to highlight your story. Obviously, I have to be anonymous. So we started having those conversations in the January. But finally, on the 5th of August 2019, my story was featured. It was like a five-minute film 
sort of edited interview of me with an actress and a film portraying my story and then a studio discussion with an MP. I wanted justice for me. The ramifications of what he chose to do. My whole life's been dictated by it, but no one will see me as the victim. And then Centre for Women's Justice, that's when they came on board. Kate Ellis, my solicitor from Centre for Women's Justice, appeared on the show and spoke with me. And from then on, they came on board and understood what I was trying to achieve. You know, I feel like I've been really let down by organisations and individuals in positions of power yeah. and influence. They have been absolutely consistent and respectful. So you get this phenomenal group of, of lawyers, of campaigners, yeah. people who can help. So finally, I'm feeling like I'm not on my own. You know, I'm a one-man band. I'm doing it all. So they come on board and really it's the show that changed it. That was the catalyst. The show was on Monday. The police turned up at my birth mother's on the Saturday. It was the catalyst for them to go out and see my birth mother and the catalyst for her to start thinking about it and eventually to make a statement in her own mind. So she decided she wanted to see this process through. Yeah. So she did brilliantly, made a statement maybe a month or so after the show. So your birth mother has decided to give evidence. She does want to see a prosecution happen. How quickly does that all fall into place? I mean, compared to many cases, very quickly. This is 20... 19. First time officers have bothered coming to sit and talk to me. But I wasn't informed when my birth father was first arrested. I wasn't informed by the police either arrests. I found that out through a BBC journalist. I remember finding that out, just bursting into tears. The disrespect, the utter disrespect from that police force. In 2021, at the age of 74, Carvel Bennett was found guilty of rape. Partly because Daisy allowed her DNA to be used to convict him. In the courtroom, during the trial, Daisy found herself face-to-face -face with both of her birth parents for the first time in her life. I got to read my victim's statement. You have evaded justice for 45 years. You have got to have a family life. You had the opportunity to get married have children, live with those children and watch them grow up. Because you chose to rape a child, I only had seven days in hospital with my birth mother. I can't imagine what it was like for my birth mother and I in those final moments together. That must have meant a lot. Yeah. And I wrote that statement so quickly. That was really early on in the court process, the police asked for it. And that wasn't just for him. That's about police and social care as well, that victim statement. He's responsible for what he did. They've let him get away with it. My issue when I learnt about my birth father should have been, he's a convicted child rapist. He's free. Do you want to see him? It shouldn't have been, he's an alleged child rapist and no one did anything. Good luck yeah. with your life. No. How did you feel when the verdict came in? Absolutely elated. There was a sense of relief. There was never a real celebration. There wasn't ever a real joy. 
because me and my birth mother don't have a relationship. I've been chewed up and spat out by these systems to the point of exhaustion. So, yeah, it wasn't kind of like hugs with my birth mother. Yeah. For your birth mother, do you have a sense of how much it meant? Because, you know, she had tried to go to the law herself when she was very young. She did everything you would want a child to do if they came to harm and was so grossly let down. We had one conversation the day she gave evidence in which I said how proud I was of her, how courageous she'd been. She'd been so brilliant. The dignity and the poise in the face of victim blaming in front of your perpetrator, in front of this daughter from rape that I, you know, don't know how she feels about me. I'm sure it could be very lover, hater, lover, hater. Don't know, but that's understandable. But she thanked me for what I did. And that's the last time we've had a conversation. We've not been in touch, really, in terms of this about court or the campaign. I don't know how she feels about any of it. You you don't know how she feels about the law changing? No. That seems so sad. It's tragic. It's tragic. And I hope she can understand. She may be angry about the exposure, but I hope there's an element of being proud of this baby that was left and that what she's done and I've done together is going to impact positively on other people. Under the proposed changes to the Victims Bill, children who were born as a result of rape will be recognised as victims. England and Wales will be among the first countries in the world to make this change, recognising the horrific circumstances that these children suffer due to no fault of their own. The Centre for Women's Justice, who lobbied for the change, estimates that in 2021 alone, more than 3,000 children have been conceived after rape in England and Wales. The new laws will enable these children to receive specialist care and support from the criminal justice system, which they would otherwise have struggled to access. It'll also make it easier for them to get therapy and counselling sessions. We've paid the price so badly. And again, when I look at what services, there was nothing on offer for her to look at her feelings around having a baby from rape. There's nothing for us jointly available to have that. And when there's no way of saying this is what we do, people don't talk about it because it doesn't exist. And that's got to change. If this law had been in place 40 years ago and the services that I want to see for people, it may be that me and my birth mother don't speak, but I think it would be with a, on a better basis, with a bit more understanding for each other, with more trauma addressed. We are living the outcome of what he did. We really are. And the investigation made that even worse. The lack of sensitivity, insight, intelligence, curiosity, well-being for people they made it worse and I'll never forgive them for that never forgive them for that I'm still angry I still don't think there's been accountability by police and social care at all I want an apology for both of them they should be apologizing to their community actually is what they should be doing my experience has been so horrific I nearly didn't survive this if I'm honest I nearly didn't survive this there would be someone else having to do this Really? It nearly broke me. 
And I can't have anyone going through that because I was so right. I'm right. Just trying to put a rapist away. How has that nearly broken me? And there's been police involved and social care involved and there's all this evidence. I just cannot have anybody else dealt with like that. I'm a secondary victim now. It's changed the whole course of my life. I don't know who I would have been. Yeah, I'm not the person I was meant to have been. He's changed everything fundamentally. And the impact's going to be different for different people. And they just, people just need that support, that understanding. And I think the main thing is, out from the outset, the conversations, the taboo, taking that taboo and shame away. I have to be anonymous because my birth mother's a rape victim. If it yeah. wasn't for that, I'd have my face everywhere. Yeah. I would, because I'm not ashamed. And... Yeah, just the destruction. There's so much destruction if there's any way of limiting that for people. That's what I hope the law does. The support and the legal aspects both. There's a woman I know who has got the care of her granddaughter who's born from rape, who's only four or five at the moment now. I immediately thought of this little girl in her files. She will read what I read in my files. And I thought of this little girl and thought, you will not have to go through what I did. Just that is enough. Even if it's you've got somebody to sit down and say to you, explain to you when it's right, what, why you are, how you are, where you are with your grandmother. I didn't have that. That's just a gift. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, the campaigner, who we're calling Daisy. You can find out more about Daisy's Law on the Centre for Women's Justice website. If you've been affected by anything in this episode, you can reach out to the Samaritans via their website or their helpline on 116123. The producer today was Priyanka Deladia. The executive producers were Kate Ford and James Shield. And sound design was by David Crackles. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. <laughs>